afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer's Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is screenwriter, playwright, and novelist Paul Rudnick, whose novel Playing the Palace has just been published. Paul, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So I have to say the tagline for this book that I saw from your publicist really drew me in. Um, they said it was a gay romance with a happy ending. And I think because I first encountered writing about the gay experience in the 1980s, you know, everything was about AIDS and nothing had a happy ending. Um, so this to me was really refreshing. What, what made you want to write a, an upbeat book like this? Well, I thought there has, you mentioned there have been plenty of completely valid and very essential books and plays and movies about gay trauma and prejudice and the coming out process and things and life during the, the AIDS crisis. But I thought we needed a balance. I wanted to write something that was just an all out romantic comedy and a celebration. I think I know so many happily and openly gay people. And I think those lives need to be reflected as well, especially I think after the past four years and the past year we've all been going through an escape into a world of, of joy felt, you know, necessary above all else. Yeah. Yeah. I, you've had success as a screenwriter, uh, writing for stage. Um, you've written a couple of my favorite films in and out and sister act. And just by sheer coincidence, I happened to catch in and out, I think like on HBO the other day. And my wife came in and we we're like, well, we'll watch a few minutes. Well, we'll watch a few moments. Well, we'll watch <laughs> to where uh, to where Joan Cusack says, "Is everybody gay?" Which is like one of our favorite lines in all of cinema. And finally, we watched the whole film, and I found that it held up really well. And one of the reviews I read um, said, said that it both flaunted and flouted the stereotypes of the era. When you look back at that film, how do you how do you see it in the context of everything that's happened, you know, in queer history since then? Well, it's interesting because when it was written, it was actually considered quite extreme and it was not easy to get it made. And I also wanted it to be, again, kind of like playing the palace to be celebratory. And I thought, no, I don't want to write another story in which the gay guy is killed at the end, even if it's a sympathetically told, you know, tale. Um, so and that it took quite a while to to make that clear to the studio. I remember during a lot of the um the script meetings, whenever the story threatened to get too gay, one of the executives would say, well, isn't this a little repetitive? Until I finally one day said, you know, we have to accept something. I was born repetitive. And that kind of <laughs> shut them up for at least the next few weeks. So the other thing that was politically important about in and out was that up until then, whenever gay material was proposed for a mainstream film, the execs would usually say, oh, we would love to, but it's too niche. It's not relatable. It won't make any money. The economics don't make sense. Well, in and out made plenty of money, yeah. as did then, you know, everything from Brokeback Mountain to the birdcage and proved that, no, there is a huge audience for this these stories. And so that actually made a difference. And in terms of, I've watched the movie 
pretty much very recently too, also because I just adore those actors to watch Kevin Klein and Joe Cusack and Matt Dillon, everybody. And we had such a good time making it that it, um, that I was pleased with it because I thought it, I always wanted it to have a kind of demented Frank Capra quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that sustains and that it's still funny. I remember I was once at a, um, years ago, I was at a club where there was a dance mix with a wild dance song. And in the middle of it, they um, used as a sample, Joan Cusack screaming, is everybody <laughs> here? <laughs> and I love that. I thought that's when you know you've had an effect on the culture. Absolutely, yeah. You're, I mean, we're sitting here laughing. You, Your writing is definitely funny. There's no question about that. This is a very funny book. I laughed out loud many times while I was reading this book. Oh, I'm um, so glad. But, but when you're writing for the stage, um, as I have, and for the screen as, as, as you have as well, you know, you can you can sort of see what's funny and what isn't. You can see that immediate reaction of an audience. It's different with a novel. You don't get to watch people in real time sitting down and reading it. How do you, tell us a little bit about how you write humor and, and in the case of a novel, how you know whether it's working or, or not. They are very different. And I've learned through, sort of through endless trial and error. One thing I love about the stage, it's also what's scary about writing for theater is that you are instantly told by that audience, excuse me, whether a line or a moment is funny, they laugh or they don't, and it's indisputable. And you can argue with them and scream inwardly, that was funny, what's wrong with you people? But nope, they win. Um, So, and then when they do, when you, at a great night at a stage comedy and the audience is howling and shooting the performances that much higher, there's no thrill quite like that. In a movie theater, the audience will laugh, but they're still, they're more circumspect. They they realize there's a distance. They realize they can't have any effect on the on the actual performance. With a novel, there's kind of the most delicious danger because I can assume the audience, the reader is you know sitting wherever, cackling away and going, "Oh, this is this isn't this delightful." But I think there's enough comedy in a novel, and you have to. It's a it's a different realm where you really need. You're building an entire world. You're saying, "Okay." let me introduce you to these characters first. Let me set this up completely that in a way I become the director, the star, the cinematographer, everything when it comes to a novel. And that's something I relish, but it is, and it's also, it's kind of a wonderful alternative to theater and film where you're also beholden to a very large group of people, many of whom are absolutely wonderful and far more talented than I am. And they're helping and they're making my material better. But there's an element of control with a novel where I also can sculpt a comic moment where it's not dependent on the immediate release of audience laughter. And I love that where I could say, okay, I can get this exactly the way I want that. This hopefully the reader will respond but I can feel a sort of very deep level of satisfaction in telling the story exactly the way I want to. I like what you said about us getting to know the character first. I mean, this this book starts out, there's there's a, a pretty funny comic bit at the beginning having to do with like personal care products um, that did make me laugh out loud. But it's like, but that sort of introduces the idea that, okay, this is gonna be a funny novel. Um, but we're, we don't know the character yet. So it feels a little bit just like a really funny stand-up routine or something. And then as we get to know your character, you're able to sort of have this a, a deeper, more meaningful level of comedy. So let's talk about playing the palace. Um, it's about an American man who falls in love with a British prince. Um, it, it's a, a story that 
on one level we're sort of familiar with, but obviously this is a this is a new twist on it. Tell us about your protagonist, Carter Ogden. Well, Carter is a guy who lives in a uh, fifth floor walk up with roommates. He's been dumped numerous times. He's kind of at the lowest possible ebb, at least romantically speaking. He's also not sure of his future overall, of where he, of his place in the world. He's about to hit thirty. It's that's a, a critical pivot. So I wanted to take someone who really needed the largest possible answers. Mm -hmm. And then it's why I think of New York as such a romance capital. It's one of the few places where the most extreme collisions are possible, where he meets Prince Edgar, the crown prince of England, yeah. when Carter is working on an event at the United Nations, where it could conceivably actually happen. And there's just this immediate spark because it's a romantic comedy and, and that spark is what we crave. Um, but I wanted to explore a romance between two people also of very different social stature, in which one of them is the most common of commoners, and the other has genuine influence in the world and genuine impact. I also wanted to create a character, a gay character who was powerful, which Prince, Prince Edgar is. He's happily and openly gay, and the world is watching him every second. That's another element that I wanted to include as practically a third leading element in the book, which is scrutiny, that anyone in the world right now, but especially in the spotlight, is going to be dissected online and everywhere else, that these guys are living tabloid lives and that they will be ripped to pieces, praised, stroked, reviled wherever they go. And that's something that Carter's not used to. It's something that Edgar's been raised with. It's when I watched the... Um, the Meghan and Harry interview with Oprah, mm -hmm. where you realize, okay, this is whatever your, your politics in the situation, this is not an easy life. This is something you need to navigate constantly. And that's, I, I thought, was some an enormous hurdle for Carter and, and Prince Edgar as well. But because I was rooting for them, and I thought, let's see, the essence of romantic comedy is to create a world in which you can buy a happy ending. I think where people nowadays and perhaps throughout history are very cynical and we live in a world of divorce and a world of therapy and a world of rejection. And I thought, okay, let's see if we can have this arc to a moment where maybe we suspend disbelief, maybe we just invest, but where we can be happy for these two guys. Yeah. Um, so that's what I was after it was a real, not an easy celebration, but a valid one. One of the things I love about Prince Edgar is that he is he's just presented, you know, he's the gay crown prince of England. And just like, that's just a fact at the beginning of the book. It's not made a big deal of, we don't see him coming out. We don't see the, you know, people up in arms about it or people celebrating about it. It just is. And it, it makes, it wars my heart to think of that there could be a moment where something like that just is, you know? Um, so I, I love that you kind of didn't give that background. You just, we just dive right into it. Um, Cart Carter says at one point, um, he, he walks into St. Patrick's Cathedral and he's he's talking to God. And he says, I was talking to God because like so many other people, I needed to, and that makes God real. Tell us about this, this sort of relationship between Carter and the divine or the other um, that, that is manifest in parts of this book. Well, I've always been fascinated by questions of faith. I once wrote a play called The Most Fabulous Story Ever Told, which was kind of sparked by that evangelical 
trope of, oh, God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And I had thought, well, what if God did make Adam and Steve? You know, how and the first lesbians, Jane and Mabel. <clears throat> so the play took off from there. But when, when I started exploring religion, I didn't just want to attack it. I didn't, I think it's not a diatribe against organized religion, while often quite necessary and truthful, isn't the most satisfying approach. And so I thought of Carter as a person of faith, but, you know, reflecting my own beliefs in a certain way that you can be spiritual, you can feel at least a need for larger answers and a larger presence in the world that maybe isn't addressed by any one particular faith, especially when so many faiths aren't particularly um, copacetic with gay lives. But, and I also love places like St. Patrick's Cathedral because there's an atmosphere there, which while having a long history of problems with New York's gay community, is also kind of gloriously serene and lends itself to true introspection. And it's sort of an oasis that can work for anyone. So I wanted to include faith rather than just mocking it. I thought, no, this is a guy who kind of yearns for a world that's larger than himself, which is part of what this romance answers. You know, that he's someone and he mocks himself for it. He says, this is a ridiculous request and prayer and desire is to make a, a real difference in the world, but it's something that he feels needs to define his life. And I think faith is is kind of how you get there. So it was, uh, I, I, I just liked including that, especially because I think it surprises people that people often assume readers or, or more conservative readers will worry that the, any sort of religious angle is immediately going to be insulted. And I thought, no, I have deep and lasting arguments with a lot of organized religion, but not with faith itself. I think that's something also, while I was working on that play, something I discovered was it's a, excuse me, it's a great equalizer that when it comes to religion, you can study the history of everything from Mormonism to Druids to um, the Judeo-Christian everything. But at base, when you say, what do you believe? What is your relationship with God? That's up to each of us. And whatever I think is equally valid to whatever anyone else thinks. And I like that. I like that yeah. sense of, nope, this isn't this isn't your SATs. You know, this is your decision. Yeah. Um, so I, I wanted to include that in playing the palace. So it takes this, this scene in St. Patrick's. Um, uh, I suddenly had this flash when I was reading this scene because I had I'd recently seen an interview with the late, great Howard Ashman. Uh, and he was talking uh -huh. about the structure of Broadway musicals. And he said, I'd never thought about this, but he said, 20 minutes into every Broadway musical, usually the third song, the leading lady sits down on something and sings a song about what she wants. And I thought, oh my God, that's what Carter's doing in this scene. It's like 20 minutes into the book. And he's, that's, you know, this is the scene. Um, talk about the, the advantage of having the reader know right out of the gate exactly what it is that the protagonist wants. Oh, I am so glad. I can't tell you that how much I love this question because I'm a lifelong musical theater freak. Yeah. And one of the yeah. things that <laughs> I've always loved that I've wanted to see if I could translate into fiction, into, into straight regular plays, into screenplays is the emotional energy of a musical. You know, the thrill, the high you get from a musical number and that I want song. And I am a, a huge Howard Ashman fan. Yeah. Um, in fact, my play Jeffrey was done at the theater at the WPA, which is a small theater in New York, where um, a lot of Howard's musicals began, including The Little Shop of Horrors. But um, 
so I, I, there's a size to musical moments and to an I want song because what happens is it's a time when a character is alone with the audience. So they actually do speak fully and right out there from their heart. And that's something a novel can do actually quite well. And I thought, okay, but I need to isolate Carter. I need to get him into a, both a, a head space and a physical space where he feels comfortable revealing himself rather completely. And that's what that scene in St. Patrick's does and why it is the equivalent of a song or a monologue on stage of where someone just lays it out there. And I thought, no, if I want the reader to invest in Carter and to get on board for his his particular journey and to um, decide that he's worth traveling with, they really need to hear something intensely personal from him. And I think that needed to happen up front and that you think, okay, this guy may also have more layers to him than I initially imagined. Um, so yeah, there is, I, it's funny because I just find that it's something that from very early on in my career, that musical theater energy was something I aspired to. The, um, in, the, in the list of things that he wants, I mean, I think one of the, again, one of the things I like about this scene is that I think as readers, we are simultaneously going, no, dude, you want way too much. And also saying, yeah, that's exactly what I want also. <laughs> um, but one of the things he says, I just thought this was so beautifully put. He says, he wants to make being human feel like a superpower. Can you just sort of elaborate on that a little bit, what he means by that? Oh, absolutely. Because I think the things Carter wants is stuff that, that can, would seem embarrassing maybe if we spoke it out loud or you'd have to be very careful if you were confiding it to a friend. And I think Carter, he talks about how he doesn't want to just get along in life and manage his 401k and settle. He's still young enough, and everybody's young enough, to want the largest possible life and to see what actually is possible rather than living a life of constant caution and paranoia and ultimately regret. So that any he's, it's not, he realizes that the magic we find in, um, you know, in the Marvel universe uh, is not going to be an option for him. But he wants to see what might be. Okay, how can he make the simple act of being human, the simple act of moving through the world into something of service to other people, a way of saying, okay, I can make a difference in other people's lives, and of finding the greatest possible joy in his own. You know, okay, what if rather, I mean, he's been through some relationship crap and a lot of life's, life's endless disappointments, but what if I stayed open? What if I said, wait, everything at any human being's disposable, <laughs> disposable, at any human being's disposal can have a glory to it? What if that's what I aspire to? And yes, that's ridiculous. And yes, that can be selfish. And yes, that can be a matter of every form of privilege. But I've always been a believer that if at least in your own thoughts, you don't start there. You don't, some of it's the, the, the traditional follow your bliss idea. That sense of, okay, if you allow yourself to some ultimate dream, if you picture yourself in some fantasy life, what would that be? I think you have to start there. It will most likely never be possible. You won't get anywhere near it. But if you don't start there, you're already you know, living in defeat. So I thought, let's see how big this guy could dream. And then let's give him some opportunities. 
So, um, yeah, so that's what he means by being human, being a superpower. It's like, how far do you take it? What are the what are the gifts that are available to you? When you look, I mean, one of the reasons he reveres Ruth Gader Ginsburg is here she is, another fellow human being who led the most extraordinary life and who changed the world forever. And that was one person facing enormous obstacles. And he thinks, okay, if that's a hero, how close can I get? You know, when you when you talk about this novel in broad strokes, you know, the, the story of uh, an ordinary person who falls in love with and is romanced by, you know, the, literally the handsome prince. Um, it, if it's one of those things that could very easily fall into cliche, but it, but it doesn't. Um, and I guess the question is, you know, how do you how do you avoid that? How do you make these characters uh, avoid falling into the sort of same trope and the same stereotype that maybe the reader is expecting uh, and, and instead give us something fresh and new? Well, part of it, I think, is, first of all, it's two guys, although there's now there's starting to be a tradition of, of, of gay royal romance. It isn't that common. So it automatically refreshes a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of the tradition. But beyond that, I wanted to make it as specific as possible. I always thought one of the yeah. my goals for this book was to have Carter bring the crown prince of England to his sister's Jewish wedding in Piscataway, New Jersey. <laughs> I thought that's something we haven't seen before. That's, you know, that's a moment that I would personally look forward to. I want, I think, um, I remember I once read a, uh, a Pauline Kael essay, the great film critic, in which she talked about how, um, about putting our own personal and sometimes, you know, most deliciously dirty fantasies about stars um, onto the screen. And I thought that's something you could do in fiction. You could say, okay, take every fairy tale, every royal story, every rom-com and explode them to a certain extent by having very different kinds of characters at the core, still following those, a lot of those guideposts. So you've got Carter, who is the most unlikely royal love interest. You know, he's not some perfect polished Ken doll. He's a guy from New Jersey. He's seriously gay. And put him up against that world of Buckingham Palace, private jets, endless privilege, um, and see what happens. So that, yeah, I just wanted... Also, I think comedy helps a lot. Sometimes romance can get very turgid and very um, self-important and very soapish. And I thought, no, 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 let's keep this comic because that way... First of all, it's just more pleasurable and it feels fresh. You feel like, oh, okay, you know, yeah, there are real stakes here. And and Edgar is a man with a real position in the world, but let's have the most possible fun. So that, um, yeah, so that I thought all oh, that would always keep the material from getting getting bogged down. Yeah. Uh, you know, I love the scene where he comes to the sister's wedding and, and his Carter's sister's wedding, Carter calls it a wonderfully over-the-top romantic theater, you know, and he has been advising his sister on her wedding pretty much since birth. <laughs> and and so it's it was going to be a huge deal anyhow. And then, you know, he shows up with the Crown Prince of England. But one of the things I love about that scene is the relationships that Edgar begins to build with other members of, of Carter's family, you know, with his aunt, with his sister. Can you talk a little bit about those sort of peripheral relationships uh, and how they play into the story? Oh, sure, because I think anyone who's in a relationship, that first moment when you introduce your your new potential spouse 
to your friends and your family is so fraught. You know, it's really a test. And on one hand, you think, no, what matters is what I feel. On the other hand, no, you've suddenly got this jury of your peers who's judging all of it. And who usually, what I wanted to have happen, which is what happened very much in my own life with my long-term partner, is your family that then can join with your, your, your love interest in a conspiracy against you. They basically <laughs> like him or her better than they like you. And I think also, and then when he's the crown prince, every family member has to define, am I impressed with celebrity? Am I in favor of royalty? Do I find this appalling? Am I starstruck? Am I even able to speak to this man? And everyone makes their own choice, which I love watching, um, especially with, with Carly's, sister's at, Carly's sister, Abby. Who's while she's a surgeon, she also lives for celebrities and for a certain show business glamour. So this is, Cardi realizes he may be giving her kind of an ultimate wedding gift or sabotaging the whole day. He's not quite sure. And Abby, being the loving, accepting and celebrity crazed person she is, reacts with total adoration. And also there's a, a, a lot of tough love in sense of making sure that this crown prince is still the right guy for her brother. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's taking a, a kind of classic romantic situation that so many of us have been in and adding a few real wild cards to it about, okay, what if the guy wasn't just, oh, here's my new boyfriend and he's a doctor, which is mine is. And so that was pretty special when you introduce a doctor to a Jewish family, you know, you're already quite a few brownie points ahead, but if he was additionally the crown prince of England, that both can be an incredible bonus. On the other hand, he's also a Gentile. So it's, um, you know, there's always something to think about, but that was the fun I wanted to have. I thought, no, this there, this is a very high stakes situation, but it's also joyous. It's like, no, 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 this is romance. This is um, not about rejection. This is about the many forms acceptance can take. And I think it shows us so much about Edgar and his personality as we see his ability to sort of you know, embrace all of these people as equals. He doesn't, he, he knows how to engage them uh, so that they feel comfortable. Um, but then there's that, there's that first moment uh, when Carter sees him where he describes himself as being frozen with celebrity terror. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to date myself here to, to say that the first time I had that experience was uh, some friends of mine in college thought it would be fun to go see the closing performance of musical nine. And I was standing out on the sidewalk and Tommy Toon and Twiggy, who were doing my one and only at the time, came walking out of their limousine and right past us. And I was just like completely, I, I had 26 questions for him and couldn't ask any of them. Uh, so so I know what that, that feels like, but what, you know, this, I think this book explores this a little bit. What is our problem with celebrities? Why can't we see them as just real people? Well, I think because we've imbued them with this sort of almost supernatural power, because we there is something in human nature that needs that, whether it's a superhero or someone in a painting or a movie star. We love and they're all actually weirdly forms of royalty. We want there to be a class of people who have a certain aura about them that we wouldn't even necessarily aspire to personally, but we can enjoy and we can dream on. They're a kind, it's almost like a kind of celebrity porn after a certain point where we think, oh, we want to watch people who seemingly lead more glamorous, passionate, wealthy lives than our own. And 
we still like sitting in our recliner with our popcorn watching them, <laughs> but we we like a great show. And I think that's is exactly why the royal family still exists. They're kind of England's answer to, to American movie stars. And I know when I've, especially during my film work, when I've met, you know, some, some big names, there is that sense of, it's, it's sort of like the first time I was ever in a room with real art where I was once at a movie meeting and there was a painting on the wall that was a Magritte. And it took my brain a few moments to realize that's not a print. That's not a poster in a dorm room. That's not something in a museum. That's this multi-million dollar artwork that I could touch. And the main thing I thought was, I could destroy it accidentally. I need to get out of here. <laughs> I thought, I'm going to put my finger through that. And I don't know what will happen. And that's how I felt with certain celebrities, where you just, um, and the good ones, the smart ones, and I think Prince Edgar practices this, know how to set the rest of us at ease. They know what they're in for. They know we're sitting there with our jaws dropped, you know, slobbering. And they go, look, they know to say, I am a person. You may talk to me. You may even shake my hand. Um, although I do remember there was a moment when we were in casting in and out where Tom Selleck actually came in to read for the role that he played. And we were in a room with the director and um, Kevin Klein was there and the casting people. And Tom Selleck comes in. And Tom Selleck is one of the few people in the world who looks even better in real life. <laughs> you know, usually a lot of stars are shorter or they have bad skin or they have light hair, whatever is wrong with them. They look like people. Tom Selleck looks like a poster for himself and he's the nicest man, but he is dazzling and he is so handsome. And it turned everyone into the room into the most backwards stuttering teenager, including Kevin Klein, who's totally straight. It was all like, <laughs> Tom, can I get you a cup of coffee? Tom, how are you? You know, and it, so it was sort of adorable. And you watch Tom deal with this, who clearly had to, had this happen his entire life. And he was incredibly gracious. I remember watching Patrick Stewart behave this way too. He was in a movie of mine, Jeffrey. And when we were out shooting on the streets of New York and just crowds would gather and he knew how to both diffuse, to sort of normalize the situation and yet accept that level of, of adoration. And so I was so impressed with him. But it really is, there is just something that the world will, that we will, that will always be with us. No matter how much, how deeply you believe in equality, you still like stars. And you watch people, you know, the most, um, even, you know, Stalin was a movie star. Um, so it's, it's a weird facet. But mostly, I think it's, it's often healthy, it can be healthy. And I think Edgar, also is smart, much like Megan and Harry are being, in terms of you turning that celebrity into something useful, yeah, using yeah, it yeah. to create more good in the world, that making it into a form of currency. Um, you mentioned that Carter's idol is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which I just love. And, and he has this moment where he imagines her slapping him in the face and saying, stop being you, just be yourself, <laughs> which is, first of all, just a great line. Um, but can you talk about what, what that means and how that kind of gets at the essence of, of character, both in, in fiction and really in real life? Oh, absolutely. I think it's something we're all perfectly capable of is self-sabotage, of overthinking everything, of hurling obstacles in our path, path where there are already plenty of real ones, of driving ourselves crazy and living in our heads. And Ruth Ginsburg is somebody who I think 
dealt with so much genuine <laughs> prejudice and power issues in her life that there was always a down to earth quality to her. And she was somebody who just wasn't having a lot of neurotic nonsense, which is why she's so useful for Carter. Because even when I was a kid, I remember when everyone would say, just be yourself. It would occur to me that first of all, that could be deeply dangerous. Second of all, would you ever say that to a serial killer? You know, that it was, I thought that's a, that's way something that's way too easy to just sort of fling around. So I think Ruth is one of those people who just says constantly, get over yourself. And Carter knows that's what he needs to hear, which is why he keeps her picture on the wall and handy wherever he goes. But that it's, especially when I've dealt with people, when, well, part of it's like my partner being a doctor, somebody who can look at a life that's, my, like my life, which is spent in a lot of show business and literature, and say, you know, that isn't really the real world. There are people with far greater problems than figuring out the end of a chapter. Yeah. So stop obsessing and stop being so taken with yourself and stop fetishizing your own problems. Um, so that's where Ruth is just the perfect sort of touchstone for Carter, he, you know, that along with his Aunt Miriam, who he compares to Ruth, that's somebody who just isn't having it. When when you when you write a play, the audience kind of gets to decide about the point of view. They decide where they're looking on the stage. When you write a film, uh, the cinematographer makes that choice about the point of view. But in a novel, um, the writer makes that that choice. And the choice you made is to tell this from the point of view of of Carter in the in the first person. Why did you choose that sort of close first person um, with Carter to tell this this story? Well, that's part of why I really wanted it to be a novel, because that's one of the only places where you can control the point of view, absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. And because he was a guy who was entering this hugely foreign world on every level, that he was a regular guy, he was one of us, who was confronting a, um, a life of such enormous power and influence and rules and so I really wanted to be with him every second and to figure out, okay, what would be that be like the first moment you enter Buckingham Palace? What would be that be like to get on a private jet? What would it be like to wonder, do I walk three steps behind a crown prince? Do I call him your highness in bed? You know, how does this work? Um, and I felt I could only get that by always hearing from him directly. I didn't want a distance. You know, when you use the third person, you get to, yeah, you get to sort of rotate the, um, the tale, you get to see everyone's point of view, but I wanted something more kind of completely personal. And I wanted that sense of a voice that was completely unroyal, you know, the least royal person, so that we were always grounded in this guy from New Jersey who was not sure what he was getting into, who might be in way over his head, and who was also taking a real delight in discovering both true love and what would it mean to fall in love with a crown prince? So it, um, it just, I, I knew from the start, it was when I first started writing the book and the when I thought, oh, okay, this will work is when I knew it would be in Carter's voice. Yeah, yeah. Now, you know, one of the characters you have to create uh, and it's not, you, you've, you've created a fictional royal family. It is not in any way, um, you know, it's supposed to represent the, the present royal family, but you, you do create a queen who has been on the throne for quite a while and is 
pretty set in her ways. <laughs> um, can you can you talk about about writing that character a little bit and and uh, you know how you to what extent, if any, did you use the current queen or did you start from scratch? And and what was it like to sort of create that monarch? Oh, well, part of the fun of writing about the English royal family, even in fictional terms, is you get to have the the readers take in your head. You that you know that they know what the real royal family looks like sure. at the very yeah. least. Yeah. But part of the 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 fun is also that the royal family's mystique is based in reticence, that they don't give a lot of interviews, they don't give a lot of access, they exist on this sort of pictorial level, um, so that you do get to write your own story, even when you're watching the real royals. But I've always been a huge admirer of Queen Elizabeth. I thought I think that for, for many decades, she has behaved impeccably, that she has never, at least in public, demonstrated the slightest self-pity or self-righteousness you know, she's been accused of being chilly at times and emotionally reserved, and she seems to be working on that. But she's somebody who's always behaved well. And I admire that. And I don't think that's easy. And it's funny, when you were watching after Prince Philip died, and there was that kind of heartbreaking photograph of Queen Elizabeth in black sitting by herself in a, I mean, some of this was, was due to the pandemic, but in a uh, an empty set of pews. But you thought, okay, this is a woman who seemed to have fallen genuinely in love and had a full emotional life aside from her public one and had now lost that man and was mourning both privately and very publicly. And that's that's a real challenge, which she again handled beautifully. So I wanted to give Queen Catherine that authority along with a certain comic and demonic edge yeah. <laughs> that she was somebody who enjoyed her power. But the first time she, uh, that Carter, when he's meeting her for the first time, he wanted it to be very official where he'd be perfectly dressed, where he'd be articulate, where it would be under ideal circumstances. But instead it's 2 a.m. on his first night in the palace. He's in his sweats. He's stealing a snack from the Royal kitchens. And suddenly there is Queen Catherine. Yeah, yeah. And his, crackers are spewing out of his mouth. And she adores the drama of that moment. She love, wields her power with a certain truly wicked glee. She knows that this guy is, you know, a bug under her, her magnifying glass. So it's the, the fun of saying, okay, what if you had the Queen of England who really enjoyed being the Queen of England and who knew what you were thinking? So that, um, but I think also I wanted to make sure that she also was a woman of great heart, that she's somebody whose ultimate concern is for her grandson's well-being. He's a guy who's had some real devastation in his life. And if he's going to fall in love, she wants to make absolutely sure it's with the right person. So that's what's behind her yeah. sort of interrogation of Carter is to see, okay, I'm going to start from a place of no, absolutely not, and see if I can work my way towards uh, some real agreement here. But so it was fun just to see the uh, the words world's ultimate mother-in-law in action. Yeah. And I think, you know, she kind of is emblematic of, uh, of what I like about this novel, which is that, yes, it's really funny. Uh, and the, the situations are sometimes almost outrageous, but, but we always feel that these are real people. It, it never, it, they don't devolve into comic strips or, or, you know, cutouts. They and so there's this heart, you know, kind of underneath it. But but I I want to go back to fun before we finish because <laughs> you know there are scenes like 
the one that's sort of a takeoff on the Great British Baking Show, for instance, um, uh, where I just have to think you must have had so much fun writing that scene. Can you can you talk about just the role of fun and enjoyment for you, both in terms of your process and in terms of what you're trying to create for the reader? Oh, yeah. No, that, that scene was a, a joy to write because it is. I've always watched the, the all the British yeah. baking shows and something that always strikes me about them, unlike Amer American reality shows and American competition shows are very cutthroat. Yeah. And there's always a villain chosen and we're always rooting against certain people. And the British baking show is much more, much warmer yeah. and much more sort of personable. And the people are all underdogs and we want everyone's trifle or crumpet or, you know, um, cobbler to turn out well. So I thought, okay, this is juicy comic turf. I thought of, this is a place where so many things could go so deeply wrong and where Carter trying so desperately hard to make a good impression, not just on Edgar, but on the entire British people, you know, that this is their showcase and he's the interloper and oh my God, could this be catastrophic? Which I don't want to give anything away, but, no, no, but it certainly gets there. Yeah. But so um, it's also, there's an element of physical comedy there, which I love that, um, which is fun to uh, to manipulate in a, in a novel to see, okay, how can you get a kind of slapstick energy at times? Um, and it's also, it's such a public setting, which makes it funnier too, because everyone is so invested. I mean, everyone on those shows so wants to do well. And even the judges want every, every dish to turn out perfectly, even though they know it can't. Also just that moment of when you taste someone else's cooking and your face gives you away and maybe your stomach starts chiming in as well. But, um, so I, yeah, it was really fun to write that scene. And also, that my, my wonderful editor, Cindy Wong, encouraged me to take it further, which I did. It was like, I thought, am I being a little polite with this? And she said, you know, go for it. So I did. Yeah, yeah. And there is just, there is a, there's a lot of fun in this book. Uh, well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners a little insight into you and your writing. So if you're ready, we will begin. What word do you love to work into your writing? Pleasure. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? A lot of buzzwords. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like intercommunication. Any word beginning with inter. <laughs> Where is your favorite place to write? Anywhere lying down. I find that's, I, that may be the, the primary reason why I'm a writer is that it's a job you can do lying down, aside from, I guess, mattress tester. But no, I always begin on a chaise. For many years, it was using a yellow legal pad. I find the MacBook is remarkably adaptable to the supine position. So um, yeah, that's where it starts for me. Where could you never write? In public. It's odd. I know people who only can work in restaurants or libraries. They really cannot work at home. I would find that incredibly intrusive because I'd be so much more interested in the life around me. Yeah. Although I do work on, um, on movie sets and in rehearsal rooms, but I usually still need to find some privacy. I will go into a trailer or into a closet or into you know someplace private, but my ideal working space is at home yeah. by myself with every possible snack. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? There are words which got God bless spell checking, God bless the internet, <laughs> because no matter how many times 
I force myself to remember how to spell interesting or tomorrow, or <laughs> there's a whole list of words that are very basic and often used that I always have to wonder how many R's? Yeah. Where does the E go? So, um, yeah, that's something where I think I will fix this later. What was the first book you remember reading? That is a very good question. I have no idea. Oh, well, <clears throat> there was a book which explains the rest of my entire life. When I was born, I have an older brother, and my parents wanted him to welcome the new sibling. And they bought him a children's book, which was called, you know, My New Little Brother. <clears throat> and in the book, the new little brother was named Vicky. To this day, I have no <laughs> idea why this little boy was named Vicky, why my parents chose this book, what my brother made of this. But I thought, okay, if you if we're going to get Freudian here, I was little Vicky. <laughs> so that, <laughs> that was probably a book I had read to me before I was even particularly conscious. Yeah. What are you reading now? Uh, let me see. I've just read a couple of wonderful novels. Uh, one is called Detransition Baby by Tori Peters. Um, that is just superbly written and very funny and so smart. And she's a trans writer. And it's one of the first books I've read that is absolutely authentic. There's another book called We Play Ourselves by a, a woman who's also a playwright named Jen Silverman, who um, it's a book that takes place on both coasts and in worlds, sometimes in the worlds of entertainment and theater, which are, of course, dear to my heart, but she's incredibly um, accurate about those worlds and funny and smart. And it's also a book about despair and loss and jealousy, which is also a tricky topic. And she's yeah. great at it. So, um, yeah, those are the, the, the top two I've read recently. What book would you like to have written? Oh, my God. So many. I mean, I never I find because I, I went through this early in my career where I would try to imitate other things that I adored and that's useless. And that even people who claim that's how you learn to write now does it. That's how you learn to copy. But you know, there are books like Confederacy of Dunces that I just worship and will return to endlessly. Um, so I don't wish I wrote it because, and John Kennedy O'Toole, the writer was clearly a man of, with enormous um, emotional issues, but because he killed himself, but it's still a book that I consider a personal Bible. What sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Hmm, that's interesting. Because, yeah, sometimes I do tell myself I'm going to write, you know, a serious investigation into every possible world trauma, <laughs> which is a <laughs> terrible idea. But it's just when you say, oh, I want to be someone other than myself. And that's all, that's just a moment of, uh, you know, endless neurosis and you get over it. Um, so no, there are, there are books that I enjoy reading that are, are nothing from my own life or, uh, that sometimes are quite serious where I, you know, I'll read Dostoevsky or I'll read something from another era where I'll think, no, there really isn't much overlap here, but they're just superb books that are worth anyone's time. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? Uh, one of the things I most love is when I'm on the subway and I see someone reading one of my books yeah. or carrying a playbill from one of my plays that because I always think, OK, this is a person my parents could not have bribed to do this. Right. You know, they chose <laughs> that book. So I think whenever a reader says that they genuinely enjoyed it or they laughed or they it made them feel better. That's something that I, I, I dream of doing. I thought because I'm a comic writer and because in a book like Playing the Palace, I'm after 
a hopeful, romantic, emotional response, when they say that, yep, that's exactly how I, I felt, then it's just bliss. That's why, why anyone writes. This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Paul Rudnick, whose novel Playing the Palace is available wherever books are sold. Paul, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for letting me be here. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. In our next episode, I'll be talking to columnist Stephen Petrow about his book, Stupid Things I Won't Do When I Get Old. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. (laughs) 